Well, thank you, choir, for coming back. Uh, it's fantastic. They, they generally get a break uh, after Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And, uh, but I'm so glad that Ann was able to get you back for that carol tribute. Friday mornings, um, I have another kind of tradition. I uh, sit down at my, my desk down in the dungeon area and um, start to do budget, balance the checkbook and all that kind of stuff. Well, Thursday, this last Thursday was payday, and so um, I look at the bank account like, oh my goodness, it's bigger than I expected. And I, lead, I say that to lead in to say thank you. Thank you um, as a ministry staff and support staff for a Christmas bonus. Uh, it came through, and we didn't get to talk about it last Sunday. Obviously, we weren't here. But it came. <laughs> came in timely way uh, into the bank accounts. And uh, thank you. It's a privilege to be able to serve Grace Bible Church. It's a privilege to be able to be part of this family. And it's overwhelming, really, the, the kind of generosity and, and, well, graciousness that you bestow upon us as a co-workers in this ministry together. Another tradition in this season, and we have the luxury uh, as Christians, specifically Christians who follow the church calendar just casually. Um, we don't do it rigidly. We don't follow every uh, detail and dynamic in it, but the 12 days of Christmas allow us uh, to ease out of that Christmas celebration, uh, we can linger and we can sing these carols today, uh, a week later, and uh, you know, even another week down the road will be Epiphany Sunday. We would celebrate the coming of the Magi to visit the Lord Jesus as a, 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 at least a baby, if not toddler. We get to extend this season out and hopefully you're able to do this and um, avoid some of those post-season blues. The rest of the world rushes into it. They don't even get Advent. They just get right to Christmas. They don't anticipate the coming and celebration of Christ's birth. They don't reflect upon the anticipation of a second coming as Christ would return for his people. There is, in fact, uh, this past, present, and future dynamic in the Christian life. And again, a tradition you may have is Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. He wrote in 1843, 1843, and uh, it has those ghosts. We think, you know, we, we, we hear the Christmas song, um, it's a, the Christmas song, isn't it, of old ghost stories? I can't think of it even. In that, in that little ditty is ghost stories. You, we got to play the song because you're not, you're not tracking with me. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And in there is the telling of ghost stories. You think, well, that's the wrong season, isn't it? Well, kind of, maybe, sort of, but uh, around Charles Dickens' era, 
in, in England in particular, it was not a children's holiday, Christmas. Christmas was an adult um, time of revelry. Uh, it was a great big party atmosphere, uh, a lot of carousing, and didn't really involve children, and it involved telling ghost stories and, you know, adult kind of scary stuff. Um, so Dickens wrote this, and in order to actually get it published and, and marketable, he had to have the, the term ghost story in there, and that is in the subtitle. Um, but it, it is, in fact, a ghost story. It has those four ghosts, right? You have his partner who shows up first, um, uh, Jacob Marley, and then the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas yet to come past, present, and future. Well, we, we do live in that kind of tension, just normal human beings, but we live in a, a different kind of dynamic as people of faith. We recognize Christ has come, and Christ is coming again. We live in that in-between of the already and the not yet. When we come to this, this sobriquet, this title, this nickname uh, for Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, we did take this out of order, although um, uh, because I wanted to do this one on New Year's Day, the beginning and the end, as Earl was able to point out for us. The beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega are those two letters of the Greek alphabet, the first one, Alpha, and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega. I think I have an image of them on the next slide. You can see that the Alpha looks like it's supposed to, right? looks like the letter A. And the omega, well, it looks like an omega is supposed to look like. We don't have such in, in our, uh, our English alphabet, but it's the first and last letter of that Greek alphabet, the language in which the New Testament was written, uh, the Koine Greek, common Greek. And, um, but we would be, we would be remiss if, all we thought of were the ABCs. Uh, if all we thought of, oh, okay, he's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the A and the Z, Z, as we might, we might say. It, it, it's so much more than this. And when Revelation 22, verse 13, unpacks this, the Alpha, the Omega, he, John, well, the words of Jesus, as John is writing them, brings in all three of these dynamics so that we get the, the fullness of its point. The Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He brings all of these together in one place. Now, he's used those different titles uh, throughout the Revelation, at the beginning of Revelation and now at the end of Revelation. We'll touch on that in a little moment. But here's some parallel passages. The Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But with this similar concept, the one who is and who was and who is to come. The one who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8, which we would remember from our study in Hebrews, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a fascinating topic and study. Let's, I, I've got several applications, uh, or at least nuances, to look at. And this, this unpacks for us the character and the nature of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more that we get to know His work, uh, it, describing who he is and what he does, 
the better we will know how to relate to him and how to relate with one another. It impacts our life, the way we live. Well, the Alpha and the Omega is, first of all, uh, this idea of infinity. Infinity, and we might remember one of those uh, more popular heroes of the day, to infinity and beyond. As if you could go beyond infinity, that's kind of, doesn't work, does it? To infinity, and by this, you know, only God is truly infinite. We say alpha and omega, beginning and end, first and last, but this is in relationship to his creation, which is within time and within space. God himself is outside of time, outside of space, his, his being. And so in this sense, he has no, no beginning and he has no end. We'll sing a song a little bit later. Time is in his hands, the beginning and the end. He's, he's outside of these things, and he's, he's unsearchable, he's unfathomable. Um, some think that the galaxies just go on forever and ever, but the Bible says that, you know, the galaxies have an end point, and it's God who is out there forever and ever. Psalm, Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars. He determines the number of the stars. They're, they're bounded. There's a boundary. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Beyond measure. Uh, he is infinite. Uh, Isaiah is a um, significant prophet in this idea of the advent of Christ, the first advent and the second advent. Isaiah 40, verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In, in all of his attributes, in all of his characteristics, he is infinite. God is love. He is infinite love. God is righteous. He is infinite righteous. God is holy. He is infinite holy. Unbounded unfathomable, limitless, and he cannot be contained. In fact, when Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, he realizes that there is no building that can contain God. There's nothing in creation that can contain God. 1 Kings 8, 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? The heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. The creation cannot contain all that God is. He's infinite in his perfections. And we make lists of them, but we can only make the list of who God is and his characteristics, his attributes, based on what he's told us they are in the scriptures. But they're infinite. Well, we, we need to keep moving on because there's eight of these. Infinity, eternality. These will kind of dovetail together. But if infinity is, is, we could put more in a quantitative sense, not that God can be quantified, we just, that's how we think. And we'll put eternality in a chronological sense, a time sense, the alpha and the omega, these first and last letters uh, of the alphabet. They indicate a beginning and an end. God is eternal. He's, he's beyond the beginning and an end. And he's eternal in an absolute sense. And, the Old 
translation of, like, say, John 3, 16, um, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever believes on him, has everlasting life. Most of our new translations will say eternal life, and that's, that's not wrong, and it isn't a bad translation, but there's a nuance, a distinction. You and I can have everlasting life in that we have a beginning. We're creatures. But our existence will go on everlastingly. And for those that are in Jesus Christ, that everlastingly is an everlasting life. For those that are not in Jesus, it's an everlasting judgment, a condemnation. There's a beginning as a creature, but an everlastingness to our, our being. God is eternal in the strict sense. He has no beginning and no end. In that sense, he's completely eternal, both directions, if we could say it that way. He is from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90 and verse 2 says. From everlasting to everlasting. Isn't dynamic, the way that the Scripture teaches this. See, even Isaiah, again, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this passage that's often used at, at Christmas time, Advent time, about a son who would come and be a ruler of the people. Uh, we call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, his eternality. Well, thirdly, we'll talk about his immutability. Ooh, there's a big word. Immutability. This means unchangeable. His changelessness, he's infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his character and his nature. God is, again, outside time and outside space, and he is unchangeable. He remains the same. We read that in our passages from uh, the psalm in response to uh, the reading in Isaiah. I remain the same. Prophet Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. James chapter 1 verse 17, with him there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift comes from him, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We read Hebrews 13, 8, and quoting the psalm, referring to Jesus, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, we might say, well, that's boring. Like change, we love change. Well, we really don't. But we do things thinking we do. And sometimes we'll, well, sometimes we'll sever relationships because we want change. We want something different. We're bored. God is not going to get bored with you. God is not going to get tired of you. God isn't going to want someone different than you. God is ever faithful, unchanging in his goodness. And because he's unchanging in his goodness and his steadfast love and his faithfulness, he will never sever the relationship with his children. That's good. That's not, that, that has, that, that's not boring. Because his relationship with the Creator, who is infinite, 
and eternal. There's so much to know about him, so much to enjoy of him. It's anything but boring. But because he's unchanging, he is love. And he always will be love. He is holy. And he always will be holy. Now, immutability does not mean immobility. God does feel. God does emote. God has compassion. God has anger. And this is how he relates to his creation. But in his holiness, he will always be holy. And in his love, he will always be love. And he will always meet those out justly, righteously, evenly, not arbitrarily, justly. So infinite, eternal, and unchangeable immutability, this, this, this leads us to a, a rounding out characteristic and trait, sovereignty. This, this is the only being who could be. An infinite, eternal, an unchanging being is the only one who can be sovereign. And this is all packed in this alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. All creation from the beginning to the end is under his watch, his care, and his provision. This is a dynamic truth. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the force behind history. And everything is moving to accomplish and fulfill its purposes. Well, again, Isaiah 46, verse 10. Here we have not the Alpha and Omega, it's, it's a different language, but we have the beginning and the end. Isaiah 46, verse 10, I'm the one who declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. That's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. He is unfailing in his accomplishments. He will always succeed in his purpose. And because he's unchanging, he will always keep his promise to his people. There's no promise that will ever fail. All the promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, the Alpha, the Omega. Well, with this infinity and eternality and immutability and sovereignty, we have to add this word exclusivity. There, there is no one other. There's no one like God. In fact, that's kind of the foundational word meaning of holy, different, different of a completely different kind. He's the creator and therefore is utterly different than anything in creation. He is, in this sense, also exclusive. Again, Isaiah, this time chapter 44, verses 6 and eight, uh, six through eight. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. 
I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Talk about exclusivity. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This is why we call God the rock. He's unchangeable. I know when you do your job interviews, you know, they once in a while throw in a, one of those, those uh, metaphysical questions. Would you, would you rather be a rock in the sun or a blade of grass? Hmm, my job is depending on this answer. <laughs> 21 years ago, I was asked questions like Coke or Pepsi or dogs or cats. It's kind of fun. I don't know that I answered the right ones, but here we are. You're supposed to be the blade of grass because it's moving, it's alive, it's growing. Uh, but we have a rock. This rock is Jesus. He's the one. Steadfast and sure. Stability. And there's this, there is this exclusivity. There is no other God. There is no one else who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and sovereign. It is him and him alone. Again, Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. I, I'm fascinated with the ministry of Isaiah and, and the message that he brings to the people of God and over and again, these kinds of things repeat and how slow the people of the old covenant were to get the message of the one true living God. All right, you ready for a more challenging word this time? I got into a, a pattern here with these first ones. Uh, maybe you sense it. Uh, infinity, eternality, sovereignty, exclusivity. Now what do I do? Let's just say incipiency. It's in, his, he is incipient. That is, he is the source. He is the origin. He's the beginning of all things. He's the Alpha, the source of all life. Christ is the originator of all life. He initiates creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it is through the Word, John chapter 1, that life is. It says, in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. He is the Creator, and He is the initiator of a new creation. In Revelation 2.8, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Another parallel term here could be the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He was died and came to life, and he is the source and the origination the beginning of a new creation, of the resurrection. He, he is life. He is life. This verse struck me uh, um, 
in John, 1 John, the little letter, 1 John 5.20. The Son, Jesus Christ, the, the verse ends. His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. To have eternal life is not simply a chronological experience. To have eternal life is to have the person who is life. It's to have Jesus, who we could say another sobriquet, another name for Jesus is eternal life. The true God. Colossians 1, 15 to 16. I appreciate your patience with all of these scriptural references. When we do this kind of uh, more of a topical study from one phrase within one verse, we end up with all kinds of other passages in the Bible, old and new, that have to fill in all this meaning. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for him. Verse 18 goes on to say he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is the source of all things. Well, there is then an intentionality about God. Uh, we might say there is always a goal. There is a purpose. He is the fulfillment, and that's the omega. He is the goal. He himself is the purpose of the creation. Why did he make us? Why is he redeeming us? For himself. He is the end. As the Omega, Christ is the point, the goal. Um, well, again, Colossians 1, verse 16. We just read this. All things were created through him, and for him. For him. He made the creation for himself. The father initiates this, and the father wants to give a good gift to his son. Gives him the creation. This creation, of course, he knew would need redemption. He knew this all along. This isn't plan B. He, he is to redeem the creation and forms a people, a bride, to give to his son. The father gives gifts, even to the triune God himself. And he gave the son a bride, making him the firstborn from the dead. You could get into all this biblical imagery and biblical theology. It was the first Adam who, who was put to sleep, and from that sleep, God formed his bride. And so the second Adam, the greater Adam, lies in the grave. And from his death and resurrection comes his bride, the church. Isn't that beautiful? His whole intentionality about God's plan and purpose in redemption is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last. It's all about Him. Now, with all of this, one, one more identifier, and that is we'll talk about imminency. 
imminency, the, the nearness of God. This title, Alpha and Omega, you can see uh, from the slide, is in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, and Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. And of course, we're, we're leaping there from chapter 22, verse 13. But you see that this title is at the beginning of the Revelation and the end of the Revelation, the first part of Revelation, the last part of Revelation, the Alpha of Revelation, the Omega of Revelation. And the Revelation is all that's in between. When this is given to God's people, we can talk about all these beginnings and endings, but he is everything in the middle. It's everything in between where we are. The past, the present, the future, if we put it in chronology. Everything lies under God's absolute care, stressing his, his presence throughout all that is between. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. Do you ever wonder why it's put that way? Who is, was, and is to come. The present, then the past, then the future. It's to bring comfort to God's people. He is with us. The one who is. Is this not what we sing in Advent and Christmas? O come, Emmanuel, God with us is the meaning of that name, Emmanuel. God with us. This is his imminency. He is right here in our midst. And at this crux of time, where yesterday was last year and today is the mark of a new year, is it not good to know that time is in his hands? We can have comfort knowing that God is ruling over all the circumstances in which we have found ourselves and will find ourselves. A lot of bad things have happened to us. And in this sin-broken and sin-sick world, 2023 will have some surprising and shattering realities perhaps ones we can't even fathom. Those who don't know all of this Alpha and Omega attribute of, of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can recoil and say all this bad stuff is evidence there is no God. Before his children, his people, who know that he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last, that it's all from him and for him and through him. We understand that he's not the author of evil, of sin. He himself does not tempt. But we know that he alone is infinite, eternal, unchanging, sovereign. He alone which means that all else is prone to wander, prone
prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And God, in his great patience, allows us, yeah, each one of us, not only the infamous characters of history or of the world, but he allows each one of us to walk our own way. And he is patient. And he's been patient all these millennia for you. Giving you today. If God had interjected uh, so quickly as we think he ought to or should, you and I would never have even been born. You, you wouldn't have even been born to have these thoughts and accuse him. But God in his grace patient and I suppose it's little comfort but it is some measure that if God wasn't good and if he wasn't gracious and if he wasn't great you cannot imagine how terrible and awful this world your life really would be unfathomable. God is present. And he is the beginning and the end not only of life biologically, but of life spiritually. From his birth to his hanging on the cross, Jesus lived everything in between for you, for me. Not only was he born for us, and not only did he die for us, but he lived for us. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. What you and I couldn't fulfill and accomplish, what you and I failed to do in fulfilling the will of God and bringing him pleasure, Jesus has done for us. Jesus has lived the in-between. And the Father raised him. And now this work of Jesus is yours, but simply trusting him for it. Indeed, we look to Jesus, says the preacher in Hebrews, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the beginning and end of our faith. He's the alpha and the omega of our faith. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. When we look at these traits and characteristics of the alpha, omega nature of God and of his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it can seem as if he is way far out there, that he is so exclusive. He is totally, utterly different, and, and he is. But this trait of imminency is for us in a very personal way. We've been to Isaiah a number of times. Let me go here one last time. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Here's what the High and Holy One says. The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. 
I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I don't know the exact details of your situation. I, I, I don't even know the exact details of my own. When we're in the midst of life, it's a bit foggy, living in shadows. But we have this word that God has come to revive the lowly, to bring life to the contrite. And this can be yours with faith in Jesus Christ, a trusting in him who has come, God in the flesh. This is the reason for the season, Christmas. So, Father, we come to you uh, in the name of Jesus. We're grateful for this revelation. For apart from it, we would, we would know very little. So, Lord, you are the creator. And you make all things new in heaven and on earth. We come to you in a new year with new desires and old fears with new decisions, old controversies, new dreams, old weaknesses. All year long we pursue power and money, but you come in weakness. All season long we covet great gifts, and you alone offer what is lasting. Through the work of, of your Son, who comes among us full of grace and truth, forgive us, heal us, correct us. It's on account of your mercy alone, O Lord, that we aren't consumed. Your compassions never fail. They are new every morning, not just New Year's Day. Great is your faithfulness. So abide with us, O God, throughout the coming year. Be our guide in all of our perplexities, our strength, in our weakness, an ever-present help in all of our troubles. Length of days is, is nothing to us. It is no profit to us except that our days are spent in your presence and in your service and for your glory. Would you give us grace that goes before us, follows us, guides us, sustains us, sanctifies us, and equips us every hour? May we rely upon your Holy Spirit to supply every thought and every deed. Direct every step and, yes, prosper, make fruitful every work. To build up our faith and to grant in us the desire for praise and a testimony of your love to advance your kingdom. We ask that you would guide us toward heaven. Our ears open to your call, our hearts full of your love, and our souls free in the liberty of Christ. Give us your grace, again, to make us holy, your comforts to cheer us, your wisdom to teach us, your right hand to guide us, 
your counsel to instruct us, your will to judge us, your presence to stabilize. We thank you for your constancy and stability. And may fear of the Lord be our awe. And may your triumphs be our joy. Almighty Creator, gracious God, we would commit our nation, our church, our family, our loved ones, ourselves to you. Abide with us and with your grace and mercy, preserve us whole body, soul, and spirit, blameless till the coming of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.